Good morning, everybody. I hope you're doing well. Um, we're going to continue our series um, in the book of Job. It's called Broken and Mended. And um, this morning, we're hitting the third part of our six-week series. And in doing so, I want to kind of recap what's happened. We have, we have Satan crushing Job and taking away his, li- his livelihood, all of his possessions, taking away not just that, but taking away um, his possessions, his family, and his health. He loses everything. It's gone. Now, Satan does this, but God has to allow it to happen. We've seen that God is sovereign in all things. We've seen how Job has reacted. He is broken, but he did not sin against God. And then we see at the end of that time where Job is sitting there with his friends. And I want you to know something this morning. And here's where, here's where we're focusing. There is a period of time between when we are broken and when we are healed. That kind of in-between half-life right there where we're kind of waiting for God to take the hurt and, and, and to make it hurt less, to comfort us. It's that place where the bad things have happened. Our, maybe our whole, our whole world has fallen apart. We believe, we're, we're, we're praying, we know he's in control, we know he's working for our good, but we are waiting for that day when it just doesn't sting so much. Where we don't feel the hurt as bad as it was, as we wait for mending to come. What do we do? What do we do? And Job helps us here. What we have beginning, let's look at, in, in this, we're going to start in Job chapter 2, Now I want you to, to buckle up, okay? Because I have this, this is the task. I have to get us from Job 3 to Job 31 in like 40 minutes, okay? So buckle up, all right? I've had caffeine this morning. I hope you did because it's about to go down. Job 2, verse 11, this is after he's been broken and his friends show up on the scene. Now when, Job, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite. There you go, okay? And they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. So what do they do? And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him because he was in such sorrow. Remember, he shaved his head. He's got sackcloth on. He's got ripped clothes. He's laying on the ground, and he's, he's covered in ashes. And also, remember, he has these gigantic sores everywhere that he's picking with a piece of pottery, which can't be sanitary. So when they see him, they do not even recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their foreheads towards heaven. And then it says in verse 13, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that he was suff- his suffering was very great. And some, actually, this is probably the last good thing they do. And, they're sit- and this is actually a really good thing. You know, just, this is a freebie. A lot of times we don't want to be around people who are hurting because we don't know what to say. That's fine, because I'm a pastor and I've done this for a long time. I don't know what to say either. And some of you who I've been around in tragedy, you're like, you're right, he doesn't know what to say, okay? But you know what sometimes the best thing you can do for somebody is just to be there. And Job's friends, this is probably their last, like, intelligent act they have. And so they sit there with Job, 
And then Job, in chapter 3, he begins to speak. And remember, he didn't sin in his heart. We see that in chapter 1 and 2, that all this happened. And Job said, God, you give and you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His wife told him, hey, Job, curse God and die. And she's like, you're foolish. You're acting like a foolish woman. No way. Can we, can we only accept good and not trouble coming from the hand of God? Job did not sin. He recognized God's goodness in all things and that God was at work in all things, and he didn't sin. But then the darkness sets in. And so what happens? Job 3, 1 through 4, Job opened his mouth after seven days of being quiet. He opens his mouth, and he said, Curse, and he cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. He said, God, make it that I was never born. He feels so bad. His health ailments are so bad. His grief from losing his family and losing all of his possessions is so deep that he said, God, Please, I wish the day that I was conceived never happened. I wish that darkness was on it and that I would not have even been born. Do you think that's anguish? That's absolute anguish. The, I think the closest I've ever come to absolute anguish was when I had a kidney stone and didn't know what it was. My goodness. And I drove myself to the hospital thinking that I was going to die. And, I, and the reason I drove myself to the hospital because I was at a Waffle House, okay? It was not related to Waffle House. I want you to be clear. I will not defame the Waffle House. But I drove myself to the Waffle House, and I want you to know, I, death sounded like a good option at that point. This is nothing compared to what this man is experiencing. Now, it's very important to know this because what happens here as Job expresses his great grief and his, his desire, God, I, I don't want to walk in this pain anymore. He is, this, is the part, this is the part from where he's broken to where he is mended because he's mended at the end of the book, but there's a big section in the middle of it that switches from prose, which is storytelling. There's prose, there's storytelling in the front part of Job, the first two chapters, and then there's storytelling at the end of Job in the last chapter. But in between that, do you know what you have? You have poetry, Hebrew poetry. Poetry. It's not like our poetry. It doesn't rhyme like we would think of it. And it has a different meter. And Lord knows I'm not going to teach you about Hebrew poetry because every one of you would be passed out, okay? And I would, you know, it would be hard for me to pronounce words, so we won't do that. But it's important for you to know that from chapter 3 to chapter 31, Job enters into a conversation with his three friends. And they'll talk, and he'll talk, and they'll talk, and he'll talk, and they will talk about the nature of suffering, why it happens. And they're going to look, and they're going to basically tell, tell Job, you are having this suffering because you've sinned. And there's a refrain of it over and over again. Hey, what, what are you hiding, Job? What sin is there that you're hiding that brought you to this place of despair? Where is it? Now, here's what I want to do. You realize something. If I say it, it doesn't matter unless I back it up with the Bible, right? Just want you to be clear about that. If any, just because someone is quote-unquote called a preacher or a pastor, do you know how much authority they have? Squat. 
unless, that's the technical term, unless what they say and do, it lines up with Scripture because this is God's revelation to us. So what I'd like to do this morning, I want to show you, the, show you just three examples of how his friends come at him and say, Job, you've sinned. Totally unhelpful, right? But I want you to know something. His friends weren't all bad, and in certain circumstances, they might have even been right. Because we're going to look this morning at what do you do when you're walking in between brokenness and being mended? How do you live? How do you survive? And the first thing you do is this. You need to examine your heart. Because Job's friends, in some situations, they actually were right. They could have been. Not in Job's. We know we got, the, we got the whole revelation. We got the whole picture. There is some suffering that comes upon us because of our sin, especially, especially and basically for unbelievers. Get, let me give you some biblical examples. Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible. Do you know why judgment came upon them? Because of their great sin. If you want to go have that detailed, go read it. Why did sin and suffering come upon different nations? Jericho, for example, because of sin and the way they stood against God and his people. Some suffering comes because of sin, but that's not all that we see. But you need to know this. Some of us have a real problem with the fact that God can judge. We have a real problem with the fact that God can be a judge until we're wronged, though. Right? I can't believe, how could a good God send people to hell? I, I just don't understand it. Until someone sideswipes you, until someone kills someone in your family, until someone steals something of yours, and then what do you want? Kill them! Make them pay! It's amazing how, how, it's amazing how short-sighted we are. No, no, God, don't give justice to me. No, don't give me what I deserve. Give me grace. But that person, they deserve it. Right? Well, let's just, just go ahead and settle in here. There's a possibility that in certain circumstances, these guys could be right. They're not here, thank God, and they're not right in all circumstances. But I want to prove to you that what they're saying is sin can cause suffering directly. All right? We're, getting to a, we're going to go to a, a lighter place here, but you need to know this. Going on in Job, this is going to be Job chapter 4, verse 11. And this is Eliphaz, bad name, and here we go. Then Eliphaz the Temanite, and I think we got it on the screen for you to follow around. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made him firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you. Look, you've instructed everybody, Joe, but now suffering's coming to your door. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made him firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not the fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Hey, you've instructed a lot of people, Job. You've tried to help them, strengthen them. But now trouble's coming to your door. What are you going to do? This is right after the guy's cursing the day he was born. Not very helpful. But some of what they're saying, let's acknowledge a few things. Some of his friends get a few things right. They acknowledge that God is sovereign. They acknowledge that God is in control, that he's almighty, and that he is just. They just missed part of the, part of the boat. And here, verse 7, they said, remember, 
who that was innocent ever perished? Hey, Job, who, who was it that was ever, that ever perished because of their guilt that was innocent? He goes on, or where were the upright cut off? And as I've seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Some of we got, if you plant, I don't know, soybeans, and you sow and you plant the soybeans, what are you going to get? Soybeans. And he's saying, if you sow sin and trouble, what are you going to get from it? Trouble and sin and its consequences. We see that. We even heard in the Bible, you reap what you sow, right? And then he goes on and says, by the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong perish for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. That is poetic way saying, you're going to get it because you have sinned. All right? That's Eliphaz. Job will respond to that. But then we go to another guy, his, his next friend. I want to show you this is true. This is Bildad. Again, Thank God we don't have anybody named Bildad in the house today, okay? Then Bildad, the Shuhite, answered, and he said this. How long will you say these things, Job? Because Job is proclaiming he's innocent. They're saying, you've sinned, you've sinned. And Job goes, I have not. And Bildad's like, all right, all right, let's cut to the chase. How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a great wind. He basically calls Job a windbag, Okay? He says, does God pervert justice? Does God get his justice wrong? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? Are you going to accuse God of that, Job? If your children have sinned against him, and this is a low blow now, because remember, his children died, and so he accuses his, Job's children of sin, his children who are deceased. Could you imagine if you were in Job's situation? You want to take that pottery that you've been scraping your sores with and start scraping that dude's sores that you made. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hands of their transgressions. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your later, latter days will be very great. So they acknowledge something. You've sinned, Job. It's obvious. And obviously your, chin, your children have sinned. But if you repent and turn away from your sin, God will restore you. So they actually got some right theology there. Because in certain situations we know judgment comes because of sin. You reap what you sow. That's a Bible idea. And then he says this, that if you repent, here's the good news, and you repent and believe, you will be saved from all this, this trouble. Those biblical ideas, right? But they don't know what's going on because they haven't had the revelation that, that we have through, that, through God's giving us his word, that we know that Job is not, not being punished because he sinned. He's being, this suffering has come upon him because he's actually righteous. Now we get to another guy. It's proving the point here. We get to Zophar, his third friend. And Zophar, the, the Namathite, answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judge right? 
his friends are starting to cop an attitude. It started what it started as a friendly disagreement, as a friendly discussion about what was going on. And really, it started out as they were trying to comfort Job, has really escalated. Have you ever been there at that point before? You're having a friendly conversation, and before you know it, it and, and it's college football season, so you kind of understand this for some of us. Okay, you start with a friendly conversation, before you know it, it's like, no, you're okay? But this is like, these are dealing with grand issues, big issues, and you can imagine these guys are having this back and forth, and we get to Zophar in in Job 11, and he says, should a multitude of your words go unanswered? You just keep wah, wah, wah. And a man full of talk be judged right. Should Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall you, shall no one shame you? Are you gonna go, is your is your your windbag words they gonna go unanswered? And he goes, for you say my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. That's what Job is saying. Job adamantly is holding to the fact that he is not being punished because he has sinned. He's actually right, but they can't see it. And he goes in verse five, but oh that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in his understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. God's act, he actually says, Job, listen, God, you can't hide anything from God, and actually right now he's giving you less than you deserve. Job was probably thinking, what else could he take? My life? Job was convinced of his, that he was guiltless, and we know that he was. That's not why the suffering came. And now let me get, let me get to the point. Now, this doesn't mean that Job has never sinned, okay? Everybody has sinned, but in this case, Job was not wrong. And these guys are saying, Job, it's obvious that you have sinned. And that's why this bad stuff is happening to you. And then they say, Job, what you must do is there's obviously some secret sin hidden in your life that you got to get rid of. And he says, in going on, Zophar says, if you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands towards him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not justice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish and you will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away and your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. He says, listen, Job, we, it's obvious you've sinned and you just keep trying to justify yourself. But you have sinned. And if you repent, God will forgive you. They... There are certain cases where his friends actually would be right. We've shown that, right? So that through the rest of Scripture. There are some, there's judgment comes upon sin. And that scares us. It should. But praise be to God, that's not the end of the story. We don't have to, that's not the only reason suffering comes. And here's what we have. We see it in Job, and we see it in the rest of Scripture, that suffering, trial, and hard times aren't necessarily just because of punishment. There's other reasons in which they happen. And I want us to look at those reasons. We want to start off with this one, which is, is the fact that sometimes sin and suffering 
comes as a direct judgment from God. And when we experience times of deep trial, do you know what we should do? You know what it makes us do? It makes us start to think about life and what it means and where it's headed and what's going to be the next little bit. Have you ever heard that Tim McGraw song, Live Like You Were Dying? You ever heard that one before? You have that, you have that song where he, he has some type of illness. Doctor's talking about, you know, time. And all of a sudden, he went skydiving and Rocky Mountain climbing. And he went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. And I'm actually a little bit embarrassed that I know that much of that song. But I want you to get this place. What happens? Great suffering, the possibility of death, and what does he do? He stops and he reconsiders his life and says, let's go skydiving. And you listen to that song and you're thinking bucket list for stuff, okay? And you say carpe diem, let's seize the day, okay? That doesn't mean grab the carp, okay? Seize the day. And so you think about that. And I want you, that's an example of the fact that sufferings make us stop and go, I need to think about why I'm here and what I am doing. And I talk, we talked about it in the first message, that your sufferings, especially for somebody who is not a believer, your sufferings are smoke alarms. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to get your attention so that you'll be aware of the danger. And I want you to know there's a clear principle. His friends in certain circumstances would actually have been right. Their theology is actually narrow, but... In one sense, they are right because sin and suffering comes on, upon people because of sin. That is one of the reasons that sin and suffering, or that, that judgment and suffering and toil happens. It's because of sin. We see it. It's a biblical idea. God is right to judge and to be the judge. He is just. He knows it all, and you will reap what you sow. But here's the good thing. The first good thing, good, good news about that is this. If you are not a believer in Jesus, you're still under God's judgment. But the suffering that comes into your life, even though it may at first be a punishment, may be God trying to get your attention and to show you how great of the, of the danger you are in that you need to turn and repent and trust him. The suffering, if you are an unbeliever, if you have not been born again, if you have not trusted Christ, if your life is not centered around him and, tr and trouble and suffering comes into your life, it might be a direct judgment from God. I don't know. But if it is, as long as you have breath in your lungs, it is maybe a judgment, but it's also a fire alarm that's saying, wake up because there's worse suffering ahead. And it's actually grace especially that you're hearing what these warnings are. They're not wasted. Second good news for believers is this. Remember, I've been talking about this. Here's, here's what we got. Job can't see why he suffered. He never has that picture into heaven and the fact that he's suffering because God wanted to glorify himself in Job. He's suffering because he was righteous, and he wanted to show Satan that, no, Job treasures me. And he was Job was glorifying God in his sufferings. He, didn't, he doesn't ever get to see that that we know of. Because he, but we do. Because we have been given revelation. We've been given the rest of the story in the rest of the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We've been given the rest of the story in Christ. And so here's the good news. Though his friends were right in some of their theology, their view was narrow. 
but because of God's revelation through the Spirit and His Scriptures, we can see more of the big picture. And for the believer, here's the, here's the, here's the bad news. There, there are some sufferings and pains that come into your life that are a direct result of sin, especially for the unbeliever. The good news for that is this. It's a call for you to repent and turn from danger. Second thing for the believer, Romans 8.1 says this. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I want you to get this. You will not be punished like an unbeliever because of your sins. You will, have, you will bear no condemnation because of your sins, but you will bear discipline. Discipline. So the first thing I want you to see is this. When we get to this point of a broken life, and we're walking in between that point of being broken and being mended, and we're tra- trying to figure out what we're going to do, we have to stop and examine ourselves, and we need to examine ourselves first and say, is there sin in my life? The answer might be no. I'm not saying you're perfect, okay? You know that, but is there some direct sin that is leading to this? In one case, if you're an unbeliever, there's all sorts of sins in your life, and the suffering that is coming is, it's it's there for you. It's a smoke alarm saying, warning, okay? Whatever it's going to say, you are in desperate danger of worse suffering to come. For us believers, it's this, it's this disciplinary, this fatherly discipline that is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. What you are doing is bad for you. Again, what do we, what do we, what do we go to to see this? Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 5 and 6, and Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, says this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So you need to examine your life and see if there's sin because there might, if you're an unbeliever, you need to know that you need to repent and believe because there's worse suffering coming when suffering comes into your life. It's a picture of what's to, what's to come, and it's, it's calling out, repent and turn. If, you're a, if you are a believer, it's discipline, and it's your father saying, what you're doing is wrong. Turn from your sin and turn to me because I have better for you than sin because we know sin leads to death and destruction, and he wants more. And so sin and suffering, and sometimes it leads us to the place where we know we need God's discipline and we must repent. So when we come to a time of, of great suffering, we need to look in the mirror and say, God, what are you showing me that I need to repent of? Because it might be that he is disciplining you through his suffering. But his discipline, though tough and painful, is actually for a good reason. Many of you know I have a four-year-old. He acts a lot like me. I apologize. (laughs) And it's a lot of fun because we think the same way. Pray for Amy. And there are things that he does. I love, listen, I like to be the guy who says yes, and really she does too. But if you say yes to everything, your kid will be awful, and no one wants to see them, and they might hit you with an ax one day. I don't know. Well, there's a reason you tell a kid, don't go in the road. 
You know why? Because it's dangerous. And if you actually let your kid go frolic out on the freeway, you wouldn't be a very good parent, would you? Here's some knives and matches, Judson, and a firecracker. Go play on I-40. I mean, could you see that? Would that be good parenting? No! It would be ridiculous. So what do you tell them? Don't go in the road. It's dangerous. But they might not like that. So they're in the road! Can you... Oh, the conniptions that we have had in restaurants before, okay? I know that's never happened to you, and it's only me. What? I want, I want a candy! I want a... Okay, and you're like, no. Because you know if you give in then, you're going to have to give in for the rest of your life. It's like, it's like a mafia thing, okay? And so you're like, no. Why? Is it because you don't want your kids to have good things? No. It's because you want them to, to live a life that honors God and a life that they can actually be successful. And so why do you discipline them? You do it out of love, and that is the good news. To the believer in Jesus, to the born again, every, if, it, if you have suffering that comes in your life because of your sin, it's not judgment, it's discipline. And discipline hurts. But discipline is necessary. Because it keeps us from being broken and being useless and being in trouble. He wanted you to know something. That's, that's the good news that, 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 that Job's friends missed. They only could see that sin comes because, or that judgment comes because of sin. Suffering comes because of sin. That is true. But there's other, there's other aspects of it. And one of them is this, that God, even if, he, even if you have been in sin, that for the believer in Jesus, his love never fails in the fact that he won't let you stay in your sin. And the suffering that you might be going through might be, might be God saying, a correction saying, son, daughter, you are off course and you are not living for what I have for you. And I'm going to correct you so that you will live, for, live in my joy and live in my ways and know me. So I want you to get this. Sometimes when we're walking between the broken and the mended, it's the time to examine to see if there's sin in our life. Secondly, I want you to know this. When we're walking between the broken and the mended, sometimes we need to examine and see God's transforming work in our lives because we know sometimes the discipline of God leads to transformation. We also know from in James chapter 1, verse 2 and 4, remember we have this revelation that that. that that Job did not have, we have the fullness of the revelation come through Christ and his word in the scriptures. And we see James 1, 2 through 4 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, here's what the testing of your faith produces, steadfastness, where you won't give up and you stay faithful, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete and lack in nothing. Here's the good news, that God... 
The thing that Job's friends can't see, that sometimes God brings suffering as judgment. Maybe it's either for an unbeliever, it's judgment with an with a end towards repentance. Or maybe it's, it's for the believer, it's a disciplined judgment because of your sin. And he's, he's showing you that you need to turn for a better life and for a life more full of joy and grace. But then we also see this, that sometimes the trial and troubles come as tests to mature us and to make us the people that he has called us to be. Talked about this in the first message. Our sufferings are either smoke alarms or chisels. How does someone, how does a, how does a sculptor make a sculpture? There's many different ways, but usually it breaks down to the, a hand chisel and a hammer. And just taking off chunk at a time. And sometimes the trials that the Lord brings our way are meant to teach us steadfastness. And from steadfastness, we see how God works in every one of these situations to bring about our maturity. God, nothing is wasted in God's economy. He is using our hurts even to make us more like him. And so he might be using this time, as we've seen in James, in this revelation that Job and them don't have, that he is working even to mature us in our sufferings. And you can think about that, and you can see that. I think back to my life in ministry in a really difficult period, and I saw, I saw somebody who I worked with was being shipwrecked, his life in ministry being shipwrecked by the love of money. And I saw maybe some tendencies like that in my own heart. But then I saw the bankruptness of this man's life, and it scared me to death. And I'm thankful for the trouble I went in through now because God has removed most of the vestiges of the love of money out of my heart. I still struggle with many other things, but God used a difficult time in my life to show me the bankruptcy of that sin. And I want most of us, when we look back and we see the things that we've gone through in our life, we look back and most of us say, that was really tough, but when we can always typically see the hand of God and how he was working in that circumstance to do something greater. I didn't mean, this is not the sermon on the kidney stone, but I want you to know something. <laughs> when I had that kidney stone, <laughs> the sermon on the kidney stone, that was awful. <laughs> when I had that kidney stone, it was several years ago, I was slated to have a meeting that day, and it was going to be a confrontational meeting that could have changed the course of my life completely. It was not time for that meeting to happen. And I was bullheaded enough to go through with it until God said, no, you're not. And that thing had been palling around in my kidney for some time, okay? That little booger, okay? And then by the providence of God, that thing moved. <laughs> and I went through agony and my wife knows this very clear. You just have to take my word for it. That, kept, that, that, that took this meeting and kept it from happening for a year for all the things to come in order for God to work. And I can look back now. Are kidney stones good? No. Not in the slightest. But was he working for my good and disciplining me and showing me? He's stopping me, laying in the bed for a long time. Yes, he was stopping me and showing me and maturing me and chiseling me and preparing the way for me. 
So we need to look and examine our lives when suffering happens to see if there's sin there. We need to examine our lives when, when, when brokenness happens, and we need to look for God's transforming work. Look for, look, remember what he has done, but look what he's doing now. He doesn't bring anything into your path arbitrarily. There is, everything that happens is on purpose for his purpose. The whole cosmos pulsates and is held in existence, and it exists by and for Jesus Christ. And he is working all things for your good and his glory. And we need to look for his transforming work in all of it. Finally, I want you to get this. When suffering happens, we examine our life for sin, we, and we're waiting to be mended. We examine our life for, for sin. We examine our life for the evidence of God's transforming work, and we must examine our life for God's glory. Remember Job? The reason Job, Job was, at, his friends were wrong. They were right in one aspect. They could have been right, but in Job's situation, they were not right because Job was not suffering because of secret sin. Job was suffering because God saw him to be faithful and mentioned him to Satan. And Satan said, he's just a gold digger and you're a sugar daddy. Only reason he is, only reason he loves you and follows you is because you put a protection on him and you've given him all these things. He says, take away his family, take away his cash, take away, um, take away his, his own health and he'll curse you to his face. And Satan was wrong and God was seen as a greater treasure. And so Job suffered to glorify God. We have another situation of that happening in the scriptures with Jesus. In John chapter 9, they see a man born blind. And his disciples come up to him. And they said, and actually the disciples have the simple theology of Job's friends. They, have, they don't have the, this revelation, this word from God. They don't see what we can see now because we have been given the revelation of scripture. And he says this, they come up to him, hey, rabbi, common name means teacher is what they call Jesus a lot. Rabbi, who sinned? Why is this guy blind? Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? It's dangerous to ask Jesus a question because <laughs> he always had something that was like, dang, okay? I wish I, I kind of wish that you were probably they were all probably you ask him no you ask him you know you ask him okay he asks him he's like drops the mic every answer okay and he goes Jesus answered it was not this man who sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him think about that for a second. This man was born blind. And you think about all that blindness brings. In our culture, we have a person who is blind has great many difficulties, but has many more resources than anybody in the first century would have had. There was no welfare. There was no disability. There was, there was not universal health care. This man was basically on his parents' dime his whole life. And if they weren't wealthy, they were, the whole family was going to be poor. And he would most, more than likely become a beggar. And in this case, he wasn't. We got, we got a different situation. But want you to know it was very clear that he being born blind was a very huge difficulty in this man's life. In fact, it was probably the difficulty, they called him the blind man, this blind man, his difficulty actually defined him in so many ways in societally, okay? And you think about all the difficulty he has because he cannot see, and he doesn't have a seeing eye dog, or he doesn't have the benefits of, of modern technology to help him in his blindness, and God gave him that infirmity 
to show the works of God. And I want you to know something. Here's the beauty of it. It was in, it was out of this man's great suffering that we see this great miracle, which is the source of his joy and the source of his belief in Christ. Because what happens? Jesus heals the man. And the guy doesn't actually know who healed him. And the, the religious leaders, they grab him and take him off. This is in John chapter 9. They grab him and take him off, and they said, who is this man who did that? And he's like, I don't know. Only thing I know is I was blind, and now I see. And he starts glorifying God, and he believes in Jesus. We see that in the passage, and I want you to get this. And sometimes it's your greatest sorrow that God glorifies himself the most in, that we grow the most in, and that we see God more clearly. And I'll tell you something, a little bit of pain for the maximum gain of knowing God in Christ in your life is worth it. We do this all the time. We trade off a little bit of pain for a lot of, of good benefits, don't we? Go to the gym. Go take a run. Don't eat the cake, okay? Because cake would be good, but cake will make me fat. So I try not to eat that much cake. Why do you deprive yourself of cake? For the good of your health. We do it all the time, but for some reason we can't think about it because the prize is far greater than cake. Because cake comes and goes. You can tell we had a wedding last night because I'm thinking about cake. <laughs> but you understand the principle here. There is something greater than your health, wealth, and your life here on earth. Knowing God is greater than all these things. And I bet you, if this guy could trade his eyesight for what he found in Jesus, he wouldn't. And Job, if he realized that the reason for his sufferings were to glorify God, I bet you, knowing the way he knows God, he'd be like, okay, I can understand it now. I can endure the pain. So I want you to know that sometimes, and this is a quote from Rick Warren, a pastor out in California, who when his son committed suicide several years ago, in talking about that after a, a few months off to deal with his son's suicide, he said this, in, in reference to it, he says this, it's likely that your greatest ministry will come out of your deepest pain. Let me say that again. It is likely that your greatest ministry will come out of your deepest pain. The thing that, is, that you're known for, the thing that you glorify God the most in in your life will most likely come out of your deepest heartbreak. I want you to know something. There is not a moment wasted. There is not a thing that comes into your life that is, not, is wasted. When we submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus, He is working for our good and for His glory in all things. There was a man, I got a picture of him. There's a man by the name of Horatio Spafford. I think we got it back there. We got it back there, Olivia, maybe? Hold on one second. We got it. Never mind. <laughs> Horatio Spafford um, lived in the 1800s. Um, 1870, he, um, he uh, had a child. He had five children, four girls, and a boy. His four-year-old boy passed away from scarlet fever. Then in 1871, he lived in Chicago, and he was, he was a successful lawyer and businessman. Hey, there he is. Hey, thank you. Awesome. Good job. So, uh, see, sometimes we only acknowledge him when they don't throw it up. We got to acknowledge him because most of the time they get it right. So, thank you very much, Olivia. All right? 
So we got Horatio right here, and this is what happened in 1871. The Great Chicago Fire broke out. It burned for two straight days. And in that time, he lost all of his investment property. So he took a huge financial hit, and the year previous, he had lost a son. Then, because they were, he was an elder at a Presbyterian church and, and a godly man, they invested, him and his wife Anna invested all, almost all of their time for caring for the over 100,000 homeless people in Chicago because of the fire. Can you imagine 100,000 homeless people? That is who they cared for. Then by, eight, by the time 1873 rolls around, after losing a child, after losing their investments, and after all of that work that they had done, do you know what? They needed a break. So he, he scheduled for them a trip to Europe. And he, him and his whole entire family were supposed to go on this trip. Well, business called. And Horatio had to stay. And, but he said, no, you guys go on the vacation. So he sent them on this steamship, this state-of-the-art French steamship, and they're headed across the Atlantic Ocean, and they're headed towards Europe. Great vacation. What happens? In the middle of the night, a ship plows into their ship. It sinks in like 46 minutes, which is record for a ship that was containing over more than 300 people. 241 souls died on that ship. Only 41 lived. One of the ones who lived was his wife, Anna Spafford. He sent a telegram, or she sent a telegram to Horatio. You know what it said? Saved alone. A daughter who was nine, or a daughter who was 11, a daughter who was nine, a daughter who was four, a daughter who was two. Gone. They actually have a copy of this, and that's all the telegram said. Can you imagine? There's no phone they could pick up. The telegram just said, saved alone. What am I going to do? What does he do? He's broken. He hops a ship. He pays for voyage from New York, and he's on the ship. The, the captain, knowing what happened, calls him up as they pass the very spot in which that ship that his, his kids had perished, that, that ship had sunk. And as they were passing, the ship captain calls him up, and he sees the very spot which his kids had passed. And I kid you not, this is something like out of a movie. He produces out of his pocket stationery from the hotel he had stayed in previously. I actually have a picture of it if it's up there. I don't know if I put it up. There it is. That's it. And he wrote the entire lyrics to the song, the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, on the bow of that ship looking where his kids had died. I don't know how that happens, but it's somebody who has a deep abiding trust in the grace of God. And he could say, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. God is working in this time between your brokenness and your mending. And he's wanting you to look in your life. He wants, to see, wants you to see if there's sin. He wants you to look for his transforming work. And he wants you to look and see 
that he is working for, your, for his glory in your life, that your life matters for the glory of God. And it's how we trust him in these dark moments that expresses our great gratitude and shows how great of a treasure God is. And this type of faith is supernatural that Horatio showed, but it's not. It's the supernatural faith that all of us can possess in Christ. And we do. And so I just want us to, do, as a confession... We're going to just take a moment of prayer, and then we're going to sing a part of this song, and we're just going to say, God, it's well with my soul. Let's stand, and we'll sing.
We bring all our hurts and our sorrows underneath your lordship, and um, we wait for you. Our soul waits for the Lord. And until that comes, till that salvation we see, we're just going to say we trust you. In the times that are tough, we want to acknowledge that you're good to us, and we want to be able to say it is well because we trust you so. And so, God, we ask you to bind up the broken. And we pray believing that you are near to the brokenhearted. And we know that there greater days are ahead of us than are behind us. Though we might have much tribulation in this life, we have hope in a future in Christ. And so we pray believing. We, play, we pray trusting. We, play, we pray with joy in the sorrow and in the night. And we trust Jesus. Because out of his great sorrow comes our life. And you are good. And your love endures forever. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.